Welcome to Life, Love, Insight, Fertility Experiences. I am so excited today to be able to talk to Elise Barnes, who's an embryologist. I had first seen her actually on Instagram because her posts are unbelievably educational, which I love. And then I had the pleasure of meeting her at ASRM this year. So I'm thrilled and we're going to be talking about embryology and AI, which I can't wait to hear about. <laughs> so thanks for being here today. Yes, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk with you. It's been a while since we saw each other in person at ASRM. So excited to catch up and talk about this fun topic. I knew, geez, it was like the best topic. I thought, okay, I'm really at a, a loss, to be honest with you, when it comes to AI and embryology. I need like 101. What is it? How does it work? Like the whole thing. So I have to defer to you to say, well, where do we start? I'll give you a quick overview of what I do as an embryologist, and then I can get into kind of what AI is and how it's being implemented into this field. So for anyone who is listening, who is not familiar with embryology, we are the ones kind of behind the scenes in the lab when you come through for IVF cycle. So when you do an egg retrieval, we are the ones on the other side looking for the eggs. You're the ones who do the inseminations. We freeze eggs, embryos, we warm eggs and embryos. Um, so we are the ones that kind of do all aspects of the lab work in the IVF lab. But what's so important about it is the people who I work with and who I've worked with over the years, you know, labs have become more and more visible. Even when you go into a center now, like there's clear glass so you can see what's going on. And people will actually like go to certain clinics because of their labs, because the embryologist is so important. So even though you're behind the scenes, you are the ones who are really creating the embryo, thus the embryologist, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I tell patients that when you're considering a practice, you want to take the lab into consideration. The position is very important, but the lab is also just as important and can really make or break the cycle. So you want to make sure you at least have a conversation with your physician about their lab and their statistics and how things run because it's a, an important aspect. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to double check, make sure everybody understands the statistics, right? Because you said make sure that they know the statistics too. So what would they ask about statistics? Yeah, so I like to have patients, because every patient is different. Not everyone is exactly the same. But in general, give an idea of, hey, if I'm a patient who has tubal factor infertility or male factor infertility, what do you see when you work with patients like me? You know, this is what I'm coming to you as a patient with this specific issue or multitude of issues. How have your other patients done in this case? I want to hear that. And the biggest question I get from patients is chain of custody. So if that's something you're concerned about, like wanting to make sure that the sperm, the right sperm makes the right egg, and that's something you want to make sure that you you have on the forefront, which all labs do have on the forefront, but understanding how their lab does it, if they have a, a, an electronic witnessing system, or if they're using just double witnessing with embryologists. So if that's something that you're curious about or have to about, ask. And then I think that goes along with statistics. It's an overall view of the lab. SART, S-A-R-T, I think is a great resource for those who are looking for statistics on their lab. It is an organization that labs report to and report all of their clinic data to, and they analyze it. And typically, the data that you're seeing is a couple years behind because it takes them that long to analyze all the data. But um, I think it's a great resource for anyone who is maybe considering a couple practices or wanting to get more information about the practice they've already chosen. 
Thank you for giving that information because for statistics, I'm thinking, okay, let's like make sure everybody knows what that is and what goes on in the lab is so important. So go ahead. When it comes to AI in the lab, so AI stands for artificial intelligence, and it is kind of what you've seen all over the news with these computers that are self-learning. ChatGPT is a form of AI, which is the biggest and most well-known that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, but it's interesting to think about how this can be implemented into the lab, because at this point, we are the ones, humans, are the ones who are doing the lab work, and that may not always be the case. Like, How can we implement technology into the lab space? So that's the place to start is what's already there and what things are coming. And why? Um, why do we want to? Like, that's exactly. What is the benefit? What is the benefit in doing this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So currently, some of the technology that's out there that clinics already utilize. Time-lapse imaging. So time-lapse microscopes. So there are a lot of companies out there that they have created these incubators where we are culturing the embryos from eggs out insemination to a full blastocyst, which is on day five or six. And these incubators actually are time-lapse incubators. So well, a dish sits in the incubator and there's a camera and it takes a picture every five minutes, 10 minutes. And so you get this kind of cool video of your embryo from fertilization through blastocyst stage. With that technology, it has allowed us to get a lot of data and information on what happens during the growth of the embryo. So that alone is the newest technology I think that we kind of have out there. And it has already given us a lot of information on things that we typically wouldn't have been able to see because we don't usually take embryos out of the incubator every 10 minutes to look at them. That would be crazy. So we're getting a lot of information. So I think that's fascinating. I mean, the pictures are phenomenal. But just so people know what the blastocyst is, because some people, you know, they haven't heard that term before. Can you just explain it? Absolutely. So a blastocyst is an embryo on day five, six, or seven. So we inject eggs on day zero. So that's when we're combining the eggs and the sperm. And then we culture them in media that provides nutrients for the embryo. From that day zero, from the day that it was inseminated, through day five, six, or seven, and that embryo grows during that time and grows into a blastocyst. And at this point, that is as long as we can culture an embryo, but it allows us to see two different things. We can see the part of the embryo that will become the baby, but we can also see the part of the embryo that will become the placenta. And that is typically when a patient is doing a transfer. If you're doing an embryo transfer, it's usually of a blastocyst, so an embryo on day five, six, or seven. And when you're freezing, do you go to day three? So when you freeze embryos, most practices are still culturing out to day five, six, or seven, so you're freezing a blastocyst, so an embryo that has made it to day five, six, or seven. Um, There still are a couple of practices out there that will freeze on day three, but it's much less common than it used to be most of the time. We're culturing out to day five, six, or seven, transferring on day five, six, or seven, and also freezing on day five, six, or seven. Okay, great. I do have a few patients that are doing day three, and that's why I asked the question. And that's because of other fertility diagnoses and challenges that they're having where they don't want to, they don't want to take a chance and they just want to take whatever it is that they have at that early stage. Yeah, this is incredible. So with AI, you can actually, instead of having to go in and open it up and take a look and see, you know, who's growing quickly and how they're doing, you have a camera that's on it. Now, not every lab has that, I would imagine. Correct. It's a fairly expensive piece of equipment. 
because it's newer. So I'm hoping, you know, as the technology gets better, that it gets a little bit cheaper. But there are a handful of labs that do have it. If you've ever gotten like a blast drive with a video of your embryo, it looks like a video, um, but it's really time lapse. It has come from one of those incubators. That's incredible. And what would happen then if you're looking at one and it's just not growing or it's not growing at the rate that you think it should? Would you flag it or what would the action be? So there's a couple of things we can do. Unfortunately, not everything that we inseminate will become a blastocyst. That's very normal. That happens in natural conception as well. So overall, there's an average number that we see don't make it. So if you're in that average, then we're not too concerned. If you're below that average, so we're seeing less than we would expect, that's when we're kind of like, okay, is there something going on? The time lapse has allowed us to take a deeper look into what's happening with the growth. We can see if maybe an embryo didn't divide normally. So typically, you have one cell and it divides into two, and then those two cells divide into four, and then so on and so on. And we can actually see that in the incubator if they're not dividing appropriately. So we may have an embryo with two cells divide into three cells. And so it didn't divide evenly. So we have three cells instead of four cells. Or I've even seen embryos that are four cells that revert back to three cells and things like that. So we have a better idea of if there are abnormalities in development with the time-lapse incubator without, like you said, without having to take them out of the incubator, which is really great. And so once you see that, when you see an abnormality, is there anything that you do other than watch it closely or... Is there any other information that you glean from it that would help on the next transfer? So unfortunately, we in the moment, there's not a whole lot that we can do. It's usually more of a way for us to gain information and maybe do something different next time. Depending on when we're seeing the arrested development may give us an idea of whether it's potentially an egg quality issue or sperm quality issue. It also allows us to prioritize which embryos we'd like for transfer. So at the end of the seven days, we may have three blastocysts. And they all may be very similar in grade and in, in quality, but we can look back at the embryoscope and see, oh, actually embryo number one took a little bit longer to make it to, you know, the eight cell stage than, than embryo number two. And although they're the same grade, should we prioritize this other one? Because technically this one was a little bit slower. That is the piece that we're still learning. So we're getting all this data, but we don't know yet what data is important. So we don't know yet, does that time to blastocyst make a difference? Does the amount of times that embryo you know, collapses on itself and re-expands, does that make a difference? We don't know yet. We're getting that data, so we know that this embryo collapsed, but is it important? We're still trying to figure that part out. Because embryos are not supposed to collapse, correct? Not multiple times. Typically, if they're collapsing on their own, we call them pulsing. So they'll kind of collapse on themselves and then re-expand and then collapse on themselves and re-expand. It's very normal when we do it on purpose, but when the embryos do it themselves, it takes a lot of energy for them to do that and re-expand because if you think about it, you know, they're all living cells for it to, to do that. It takes a lot of energy. So we don't know yet if it's necessarily a bad thing. Preliminary research is saying, yeah, maybe it is. It, it's not the best. Um, but definitely more studies need to be done before we know for sure that, hey, we should not prioritize that one because it collapsed multiple times in the development stage. It's incredible information. When you think about it, people would just go in and open it and look at it versus put a camera on it. Mm -hmm. And that's AI. And it's like, it's almost like a no brainer. It's like, wow. You know, yeah. Of course, why would you want to do that? 
wow, a lot of companies are coupling that data with an AI technology. So the AI is supposed to tell us based on these parameters and based on you know thousands of pregnancy outcomes and thousands of cycles that we've analyzed, this is the embryo you should transfer. So it takes all that data and then tells us, choose this one. <laughs> this one will give you the best chance of pregnancy because of all the other data we already looked at, which as embryologists, we can't do because we don't, we don't have the capacity to look at thousands of cycles. Right, right. No, of course not. Of course not. And um, will it change the grading system at all? It's possible. There's a couple softwares out there now that instead of a grade, it ranks the embryos based on which one you should transfer. So it doesn't necessarily change the grade. It just does away with grading altogether and just gives them a ranking. You know, one, two, three, and four, these are the order that you should transfer them in. I think there's still some merit to morphological grading of an embryo. We just don't know yet which one is better. Is the embryologist's eye with the morphology going to give you better pregnancy rates or is the AI software really going to give you better pregnancy rates because it has all the data to go on? So the jury's still out on which, you know, is it us picking or is it them picking which one is better? It's a lot to take in. It's a lot to think about, you know, because when it comes to the data and the collection that way, it makes sense that you would use AI on this. The AI functionality is not selecting the sperm and selecting the egg and doing the insemination. Not yet. So there is some software out there that allows you to choose the best sperm or the best egg. So when you're doing ICSI, it will say, choose this sperm based on our parameters. It'll say, pick this one because it's the same thing. We're just choosing the sperm that we think looks best. And we don't know for sure if that's going to yield an embryo or a healthy pregnancy. So there is software out there that will say, choose this sperm. And there are software out there that will say, you know, these are the eggs that we think will make it to blast the stage. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. And that's definitely kind of where things are going. Wow. And how does it look at the egg? Is it that the eggs go under the makers? Like how does it do the selection process? Yeah. So it's the same thing. It's looking at it under a microscope and then taking a picture and you get kind of a report saying, you know, this one has this probability of making a blastocyst. This one, you know, doesn't really have a great chance of making an embryo. So I don't know any practices personally that have implemented this software, but I do think at some point people are going to get on board. If, if the research starts to show that it's making a difference in pregnancy rates, that's the big thing. If it's not improving pregnancy rates, why are we doing it? So until we see that, I think people are a little hesitant, but I think at some point the technology will improve pregnancy rates. And I think patients will start asking for it and physicians will start implementing it and lab staff will have to get used to using it. Now, is it in an impact lab set? Because I'm thinking, okay, so the computer says use this egg and use this sperm, but the embryologist is looking and saying, wait, I don't think so. Is that a possibility? And that's definitely a possibility. And I think it's healthy for lab staff and embryologists to be skeptical because, you know, I think that that is what gives us those papers when people are like, well, I don't know, you know, if this is really going to work. I think it's healthy to have a little bit of skepticism and things like this because it's at the end of the day, patient care and patient outcomes are the, you know, the, the forefront and, and our biggest priority. So we don't want to implement anything that could potentially cause issues with patient care or decrease pregnancy rates or anything like that. So until we know that there's a, a no harm 
and that there's a potential good, we really like to, you know, stay away because we don't want to, you know, have a negative impact on the patients that we're, we're treating. So it really comes down to, is this having a true positive impact on their cycle? If not, we're going to stick to the embryologist changing. Just, I used the word wild already. I have to think of another word. So you're going to film the, um, you can film the blastocyst, but before that, there's potential of picking the egg and the sperm. Yeah. We actually have some of the software here. It's, it kind of gives you, at least for the sperm, it, it will, you'll put your needle down to like, you're going to strike a sperm and it'll have a green circle or it'll have a yellow circle or it'll have a red circle. And the green circle is, yes, we think this is a good sperm, pick it. And then it'll have yellow, like, oh, it's okay. It's not the best sperm. And then it'll have red as being like, this really isn't the best sperm. You, you shouldn't choose this one. So I always find that I've only used it a handful of times. It's very new software. I, I, I don't, like I said, I don't personally know practices who are using this with patients. I am at a training center. So we use it for practice and to, to learn more about the technology. It's definitely interesting to see. I was not ex- expecting things to come so far, but, you know, I, I only foresee it, it continuing to grow. This sort of AI and selection sort of programs that are out there. Uh, so, they, so with the AI, what they do is they program the device. I don't know what to call it, the device. Yeah, the computer. Computer, right, to understand what to look for with the yeah, AI. Exactly. And that, I would think, is done by embryologists. Would that be a correct assumption? So a lot of it is outcome data. So the companies who are training this AI software are going to say they want all the, the data on the patient. So, you know, diagnosis, age prior cycles, pregnancy outcomes, all of those things, number blasts form, the fertilization rate and all those things. So we put it, we send all that data, you know, to a company that who analyzes it all and that teaches the software, okay, when we use this egg and this sperm, that created an embryo and then that embryo created a baby. So that's a good thing. When we saw this and this, you know, this egg and this sperm, it did not make a blastocyst. It did not make a baby. So that's a bad thing. And then eventually it starts to learn like these things are good, these things are bad, and it's able to learn what to look for. And would it do like automatically or would you even need to have testing prior to transfer? Because it's always such a conversation about whether or not to test the embryo, right? Because sometimes people are afraid of disrupting the cells. And so they don't want to do it. But then sometimes some doctors are saying you have to do the testing. or Not you have to, but strongly encouraged. You're talking about PGT testing or genetic yes, testing. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, that's okay. Just so everybody knows the PGT testing is preimplant. We can't say the word. <laughs> it's preimplantation um, genetic testing. Yes. Typically for aneuploidy. So things that um, are chromosomal abnormalities that happen during the growth of the embryo like Turner syndrome, Klein-Felters, trisomy 18, uh, Down syndrome, that sort of thing. I don't know enough about that. I have to ask some of the colleagues that I know that are in this, because currently the AMS software works alongside with PGT. So you can add the PGT data mm-hmm. to the software and eliminate aneuploid embryos in their ranking system. That's currently what is offered. Now, I don't know. It'd be very interesting to see if that uh, one day could it tell you without having to do a biopsy if the embryo was going to be normal or not. That would be pretty wild. <laughs> it would, but you just kind of answered the question to me when you said it rules them out, right? It rules embryos out. So 
I would imagine that those embryos are going to be ruled out. Yeah, it rules them out, but it still, at this point, still requires us to do the biopsy. So we still have to do the biopsy and get the results back. And then we just give it the results and it says, okay, well, embryo number four is abnormal. So we'll take that one off the, off the ranking. It'd be very interesting if one day they could just, just use all the time lapse information to say, well, we know this one's normal. That would be so wild. <laughs> Pretty amazing what could be done. Yeah. I mean, it's scary. And for us as embryologists, we get a little skeptical, we get a little hesitant. And I think that's healthy. Uh, we want to make sure all of the data and the science backs up the claims that, that the program makes. And I think that's fair. But I do think there are so many people working on it at this point, so many very smart people who are working on it that I would not be surprised if a really great program came out very soon that was just that changed the field altogether. I would not be surprised if, if we were on the horizon or something like that. What would that do to labs and to embryologists? Would it reduce them or would it have to change the structure entirely? So this is something that a lot of embryologists are are worried about. Obviously, we don't want technology to take over our positions. Um, I don't think we're in a place at this point where that's going to happen. I don't think anytime soon. But really, what I like to see it is as an, an aid to us. So it helps cut down on some of the work that we have. It helps with efficiency so that our focus can really be on the skills that cannot be replaced by technology. So things like ICSI, biopsy, um, currently those are are, th- are procedures that we have to do as embryologists. We physically have to do those procedures. But things like embryo grading, um, FERT checks, um, those sorts of things may be something that we can work with technology to help us improve and um, maybe help reduce some of the more administrative tasks that we have. So that's kind of how I foresee it going. Uh, one really cool thing about the embryo, uh, the embryo time lapse incubators, are um, you can do some of some of the checks that we have to do. So fertilization checks are very time specific. We have to check them between sixteen and nineteen or twenty hours post insemination. So you have to time your insemination at a specific time. So usually it's twelve o'clock or later, 11, 12 o'clock or later. Because if you don't, then you end up having to do a fert check at like. 3 a.m. <laughs> Nobody's going to up it and do. You know what? I know um, that. I never realized that's why yeah. all chances are taking place at that time of day. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But with time lapse, we can say, oh, we did our insemination at 9 a.m. We can do our first check whenever because we can now look back in the incubator to that time when it took a picture and see if it fertilized. So it allows a lot of flexibility in the lab. Um, when it comes to things like insemination and timing and things like that, it allows us, one piece of it is it allows us to see more patients because we don't have to squeeze everything into a specific time frame. We can start inseminations at nine o'clock or number day if we really need to, because we can check it really at home on your laptop to see wh- what fertilized and what didn't. So that kind of efficiency in the lab, uh, I think could benefit a lot of labs, especially with the demand of embryologists being so high right now. I foresee that being something that everyone just really like. I bet. And, and the clinics too, and other patients also. The only thing I would say is, like, is there a backup to the camera? Because that would be some, you know, if something went down or something wasn't working, then you just wouldn't know. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that is, I'm sure, some of the troubleshooting that happened when these incubators were first introduced. 
So you do have to be very careful to make sure that there's no bubbles over the drops. Because if you have a bubble there, it's blocking it. You can't see what's happening. There are some concerns about that. In terms of the actual incubator going down, they are backed up like traditional incubators are. So there's battery backups and generators and things like that. The specific camera, though, that is a great question. I am not sure how they ensure that there are no issues with the camera or that there's a backup for the camera. Now, I will say incubators are maintenance pretty often, especially a time-lapse incubator. It's, it's a couple times a year. Still, that's definitely something to be curious. I'll have to ask. That's a great question. That is one I don't have the answer to, but something that I'm sure they've gotten asked before. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure because I think if I was a patient going and they said, okay, well, you can come now, but we're going to let the the cameras kind of tell us, I would be like, well, what's the backup there? Because I don't know if I want to waste an embryo, you know, or take a chance that way because the, mm-hmm. the uh, potential of an embryo becomes so precious. So a conception or, you know, have had, this is their fourth or fifth or 10th mm-hmm. cycle. So- that's that's really yeah, weird. and I and I want to make it clear that at this point they haven't replaced any embryologist. So even though the the camera is there to take the pictures every ten minutes, we still go back and manually check the pictures because it will annotate. It will say, "Oh, you've got eight fertilized out of ten or whatever." We don't trust that. We still go back and check and count ourselves. So that's the part where we're like, well, we can't just trust it to make all the decisions for us. We need to, you know, we're, we got to. Make sure that it doesn't have any error. Um, and there is, you can actually set the confidence level to um, for some of these software. So you want it to be 95% confident, 99% confident. You can set the confidence level. But at this point, it's still something that we're not comfortable just saying, oh, we're just going to let it do what it does. We're still checking them. Yeah, it's such great information. And I don't know, I apologize for this if we said it or not, but prior to this, nobody would really be able to look that often at the embryo. We mentioned that, but that's why people don't get phone calls on day two or on day three because they don't want to disturb what's going on. Exactly. It's really huge. This is really huge. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us about this today because I am fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by it all the good that it could do. I'm not so happy about the potential of replacement. That really scares me on a lot of different levels about AI in so many ways. When we could take pieces of it, like taking a picture and Mm -hmm. helping to select or giving suggestions for the selection of the best sperm and the best egg, that's phenomenal. Like who doesn't want that? Especially if we can can show that it's actually improving Patient outcomes, because at the end of the day, that's the goal for everyone here is we want you with that baby. <laughs> so we yeah, can make that more likely to happen. We will try to do that. I appreciate you having me come on and, and talk about all these crazy things. <laughs> no, I think it's great. We'll have to do this again when there's another update, because I love it. When, I mean, honestly, when we set the topic, I'm like, this is fabulous. So I suppose if anybody has any questions or is there anything else we should add to this about AI today? My only addition is, you know, if it's something that you are concerned about or interested about, talk to your physician about it. Like I said, it's still in the very early phases, so it's not something that a lot of practices offer. But if it's something that you're curious about, definitely talk to a professional, a, a physician, and get a little bit more information so that you understand where the field is going. It never hurts to have a little information about where tech is going in this space so you can be 
prepared and informed to make the decision that's right for you and, and your family. Great. Well, thank you so much for the time today and for this information. It's just fabulous, really. And if somebody wants to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at Elise the Embryologist and same thing on TikTok at Elise the Embryologist. And feel free to shoot me any questions you have about AI. I'm happy to give you my experience. And yeah, that's where you can find me. Excellent. Thank you so much. And if anybody has any questions or comments I could help you with, please feel free to reach out to me at lauriemetz.net or you can email me at lauriemetz at ymail.com. Mm-hmm.